Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, the place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Hello and welcome. Today is our Christmas special. So happy Christmas to you. Here to talk about it with us is none other than Tom Holland. One of the fascinations of this strangest of Christmases is that actually it does bring you quite close to what the Puritans are worried about. So Tom is a famous historian and writer, author of the blockbuster bestseller Dominion, which is a history of Christianity and the effect that's had on all of us, and also host of a new podcast called The Rest is History. Hi, Tom. Hello. Let's get straight into the, the, the question of the day. Do you still feel like Christmas is a, is a sort of Christian festival in Western democracies like the one we're living in? Do you sense that? Well, I, I mean, I think that anxiety about that is in itself a very Christian tradition. So it, it essentially, um, I mean, interestingly, in the, in the, in the early centuries, um, you know, so early medieval period, scholars like B, great Anglo-Saxon scholar, um, is completely unconcerned by the, the echoes of the pagan in Christian celebration. So not just Christmas, but also Easter, which Bede says is named after um, a, a pagan goddess. Um, he's not worried about this because it, it, it proves the triumph of Christianity over this pagan dispensation. There is no issue with the fact for Bede that Christmas is celebrated in the depths of winter as pagans have celebrated it because he forbid the pagan celebrations in winter are just a kind of pallid foreshadowing of the truth of Christ's birth. And so therefore echoes of pagan, you know, it wasn't an echo so much as a sort of foreshadowing. But by the time you get to the Reformation in England and you get um, Puritans in particular are very, very anxious about the way in which they see the Roman church as having failed to root up the brambles and nettles of paganism. And worse, in many ways, they think that... Um, so they think it's... So they see all of the sort of angels and the Virgin Mary and all of these kind of um, other seeming deities are compli 
complexify the sort of relationship between individual and God? Is that what they're, that they're, what they're not worried about? about the angels and they're not worried about the Virgin Mary because that's in Scripture mm -hmm. and Protestants are very keen on Scripture. You know, you, you go to Scripture basically t to know what 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 what's proper. It's it's all the other accretions. So it's the. Yeah, saints, saints certainly, but but also the the general sense that at Christmas, um, the tradition of of open house, of offering um, hospitality to people, of giving presents, all of which it seems to me clearly derived, and you can see this in the kind of early medieval traditions. So there's this tradition of generosity at Christmas that absolutely arises from the kind of imperatives of the way that Christians understand their duty to the Puritans poor. didn't like it. But, the, but I think by the by the time you get to the 17th century, this this sense has been blurred, and Puritans read about the way that the Romans celebrated um, their gods, and they they draw the analogies, and they're nervous that actually these celebrations are being held not for Christian reasons but for pagan reasons, and it's the Puritans really who are the first people to draw up this thesis that Christian celebrations derive from the pagan. Oh, so they're, they're, they're not much fun, these Puritans of the 17th century, are they? Were they how close well, to cancelling Christmas did well, they get? Well, okay, I mean, I think, I mean, that, that, is, the, that is the stereotype. And um, although Cromwell didn't cancel Christmas, it, this was um, the, 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 the prohibition against Christmas festivities long preceded him um, in the kind of the early days of the Civil War from Parliament. Um, the idea that Cromwell and the Protectorate consisted of people rushing around you know, stopping people having fun, cancelling everything, um, is is absolutely um, a, a stereotype that um, continues to have enormous play, and I think has a kind true. of political resonance even to this day. Because I think that um, I, I think a huge reason why the government is so determined not to cancel Christmas, to allow people to have this kind of brief window of fun, is that they don't want to be cast as Cromwell. They don't want to be kind of um, cast as finger-wagging Puritans, stopping people having fun. But I think equally, one of the fascinations of this strangest of Christmases is that actually it does bring you quite close to what the Puritans are worried about. Because just as people now who want to really rein in Christmas are doing it for the best of reasons. They were doing it because they think that it will save lives and it will be for the good of society as a whole. That's exactly the motivation of, of the Puritans. Puritans want to cancel Christmas, not because they, you know, they just want, they want to have fun. Cromwell was a great enthusiast for music and for dancing. I mean, he, he, was, he was aware that the good things in life are good, but he was, Puritans were anxious that celebrating Christmas as they saw it in a pagan way would, doom those who did it to eternal death. And so they were worried for their, their spiritual health yes, rather absolutely. than their physical health. But, but, but it's about health in both cases. It's about a desire to you know, not needlessly see people lost to death. Um, and I think that the experience of this Christmas perhaps enables us to, 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 to have a kind of sense of, of where the Puritans were coming from in a kind of a more emotive way than perhaps we've had for centuries. I mean, it's a, it is an amazing parallel. Um, you know, and the, the Puritans didn't have social media, but uh, had they, one can sort of imagine that they would have been quite um, militant on social media and quite quick to, to judge and to, to prosecute virtue in the kind of public square. Should we look at those people who are most sort of censorious and moral high ground-ish today um, most clear, most black and white about what is right and wrong and most kind of comfortable judging others 
as today's Puritans? Well, I, you say that the Puritans didn't have social media, but they, they um, particularly after the um, outbreak of the Civil War and then even more with the, um, the abolition of the monarchy, you do have a kind of liberation of the printing presses. And so pamphlets do absolutely churn out. So kind of, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of the 17th century equivalent of social media. Suddenly all kinds of people are able to communicate and have expressed their views in ways that they were not able to previously. And I guess that as today on, on Twitter or Facebook, of course, it's the people who feel strongest about issues who, who tend to be most active. And it's those whose views perhaps are the starkest, are um, the most sharply defined, that are able to express themselves with the most but do you think do you think the Puritan comparison is fair? I mean, it sort of feels like um, there's always been uh, some type of personality that is that quite almost enjoys a, a kind of clarity of purpose that comes with yeah. moral condemnation. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Were they were they the same people in Cromwell's day? Do you think that now they're just wearing different clothes and worrying about different issues? I th I think so. I mean, I think that. Um, to, to the degree that um, a feeling of moral superiority can be a source of pleasure, um, that's, clearly, that's clearly true. But I think that in both cases, it's reductive to assume that that is all it's about. Because um, just as today, lots of people are motivated to take a moral stand on social media by deeply held principles, the same is absolutely true of, of Puritans, who in many ways, um, are the, the kind of the most, I, I find them kind of very moving, most movingly introspective of people. Because to, to be a Puritan is constantly to look into your soul and to ask yourself, um, you know, am I measuring up? Uh, am I fallen? Am I redeemed? Have I received grace? And you kind of have to Unless, you know, you can judge others and you can judge society, but you can only do that if you are also judging yourself constantly. It takes a lot to be a good Puritan. Yes, it does. Absolutely, it does. And I think that at its most admirable, you see the same thing on social media today, that, that there are, of course, all kinds of blowhards. There are all kinds of hypocrites. There are all kinds of people who enjoy the sound of their own voice. And I'm sure that that is true now as it was in the 17th century. But, but equally, there are people who um, examine themselves with great care and kind of are concerned to do the best that they can. And I think that that is also a part of it. Um, and I think that just as in the 17th century, if you take it seriously, if you take these anxieties seriously, then actually it's, you can gain a great deal from it. Same is true today. I mean, you know, you've just got to... At what point does that same instinct, which is a virtuous one and can be an incredibly rewarding one for, for society, flip into becoming a tyrannical instinct? I mean, if we look at, you know, the, the protectorate ended and life came back with, with double vigour, you know, the prohibition era of the 20s was, uh, uh, was followed by, a, you know, partying and everybody celebrating. This year, at least more than any time in my lifetime, has felt a little bit like that, that suddenly the whole of society is gripped by rules and fears and moral judgment is everywhere. 
And I wonder whether there's a sort of coiled spring effect that when it's finally over, life will come back double. I'm sure there is. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that the vast majority of people must be yearning to get back to normality. And I would have thought that um, purely looking at it economically, there must be vast amounts of cash kind of frozen um, in accounts that um, people who've kept their jobs haven't been able to spend. I'm, this might sound like a reach now, and you can stop me if you think I'm, I'm trying to make two grand sweeps of history here, but your, your book, Dominion, is all about the Christian inheritance um, and how the final chapter of it is called Woke. Uh, you know, you, you point that this, these kind of instincts have sort of morphed in through liberalism and secularism through to where we are today. Um, and it just seems almost ironic that the voices now who are most vociferously in favour of cancelling Christmas, uh, literally, I mean, that's been a phrase that everyone's tabloid newspapers have been putting on their front pages for decades and has never actually been true. But this year, it sort of is true. Those voices are perhaps animated by some, a spirit that derives from Christianity. I think so. Um, I, and I think it, it kind of comes in various traditions. So I think there is a kind of Puritan strain, um, kind of Protestantism that um, has in many ways been bled of, of God, but retains the sense of moral earnestness. Um, and I think a lot of, uh, particularly on the left, um, that, that strain of moral Puritanism, and I use Puritanism you know, not as a pejorative, I think absolutely animates it. But I think also um, another strain is the way in which um, a concern for the sick has been an enduring Christian tradition. And um, it's Christians really who, who established the idea that you should have a kind of mass healthcare, uh, the, you know, hospitals that are in which people care for the sick, no matter how um, rich or poor they are, is uh, an inheritance that we in the modern welfare state have received from Christianity. And in fact, there's a sense in which the welfare state um, and particularly the, the National Health Service, um, is a nationalisation of um, responsibilities that the church has previously exercised. And I think that is why one of the things that I've noticed over the course of this year is actually how absent the churches have been. In previous experiences of pandemic, you know, they played very, very central roles. That role over the course of this pandemic has essentially been played by the health service. Churches literally closed their doors. Out of interest, is that the first time that's happened? I think since the interdict, to be honest. The interdict so John, King John, sort of um, his bust up with, uh, with Innocent III in the um, first, half, first part of the 13th century. A long time ago. A long time ago when uh, the Pope closed, um, stopped services going on. So I think, you know, yeah, so, so I think that that's, that's been a real feature of this is that the, the churches have basically been kind of absent from the from the discourse. And so public um, devotion, you might even call it superstition, has been focused on the National Health Service. The so as you walk around London, um, I, I've seen in windows, you know, all the kind of the rainbow drawings, um, the, the slogans, the expressions of gratitude to the National Health Service. Um, you know, we've had our rituals going out and applauding in the evenings and so on. Um, and in another century, that might have been they might have been saints in the windows, and they might yeah. have been songs on the but also, doors. But also the, the role played by people who were, who were motivated by overtly Christian instincts. And so 
the sense of a gratitude that we feel now for um, health service workers was kind of bound up with a sense of, of gratitude towards representatives of the church who were doing the same. Um, and so I think that, that in a sense, um, because those responsibilities have been siphoned off from the churches, they've come to seem less relevant in this experience of pandemic, perhaps than they did in previous ones. And without wishing to draw you into kind of hot water politically, the, the Archbishop, Justin Welby, is actually quite a, a neat exemplar of the kind of Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Kind of modern... Um, Christian in that respect, because his impulse has been to be sort of maximally obedient to those concerns, um, to police almost the, the, the safety requirements, keep a low profile. It's a sort of almost a stepping back, a self-abasement instinct. I don't know if, what, how should we interpret his role and, and the kind of Church of England more specifically? Well, I, I think that... Um... He's very politically I think, correct. I think the risk for the churches, and particularly the Church of England, because you know it's the established church, is that um, with so many of its traditional responsibilities and roles taken over by various aspects of the state, the risk for the churches is that they come to seem like a kind of eccentric and not very important um, sub-department of the welfare state. And um, I, I agree, I think that the, the role played by archbishops and bishops in particular 
the messages that they were giving were basically public health messages. Yeah. So that's what they were doing. But actually, um, you know, if the church is to play a distinctive role, that's inadequate because we've got <laughs> we've got professors of public health, we've got epidemiologists, endless. we've got we've doctors, we've got endless people. Yeah, you, I, I, of course, yeah. you know, as, as you know better than anyone, yeah. you know, there are so many people who are kind of better qualified to talk about this than bishops that really it's it's a kind of, you know, what's the point of them if that's what they're going to do? And the point of them must be, if you're a Christian, that, that they're there to... to ultimately in a state where you don't have anything else to do to talk about all the kind of weird stuff that Christians believe you know the idea that um, there is a kind of purpose to this that um, you know there's a dimension that lies beyond the merely physical that you know I mean, all kinds all the stuff that, which, that traditionally the churches and um, have talked about but which now they all seem slightly embarrassed about but that's so important because I, I've certainly felt that this year that the, the one kind of universally agreed upon moral has been life or death. And all of our public decisions have been structured around that. And it's a pretty good one. I think, you know, most people would sign up to that. I would rather people survived than didn't. It just really laid bare to me how there aren't very many other virtues that are publicly sayable or that people widely agree on anymore. Um, and I you know, what is the value of uh, what kind of life people are living? What is the value of beauty, of togetherness, of relationships, of, you know, if, if someone who is in their 80s lives for nine months but is able to be with their family and have a beautiful spiritual life versus living for 12 months being stuck on their own in an elderly care home without being able to see anyone, how should we judge those two scenarios? And it's been amazingly absent yeah. For me. And maybe that's something that yeah, Christians I, I, could have done a better job. Well, I, I mean, I, I wonder whether, um, you know, Paul, Paul describes um, Christians as being like athletes, that you have to compete and you have to train like an athlete. And I wonder whether the, 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 the mere fact over the past few decades that life in the West has been so easy that, you know, we haven't kind of really faced massive existential crises in the way that we have this year, whether um, the, the church is like so many, you know, like, like all the rest of us, in a sense of kind of become unprepared for these kinds of crisis. Because ultimately, um, you know, whether you're a, a Christian or not, whether you admire Christianity or not, the, the simple historical fact is that um, of all the um, the ways that humanity over the course of its history has devised to explain why we're here, what, you know, what humanity is for, how we relate to the cosmos beyond. Of all those attempts to explain it, Christianity is historically the most successful. And that success must be founded in an ability to provide satisfying answers to the profoundest questions. You know, why are we here? Why do we die? Why do we suffer? Um, is there life in death? Um, you know, is there light in darkness? Is there redemption um, from suffering? All these kind of questions are fundamental to the Christian message. And I would have thought that there is an opportunity there for the churches to kind of examine these questions, perhaps in a, um, a more public and effective manner than... I, I, and I, I'm aware that I may well be being very unfair here because I know that there are plenty of um, 
plenty of people in, in, in all of the churches who have um, spoken very powerfully about precisely these questions and issues, but they don't, it doesn't seem to have been people that uh, the leaders of the church. They don't seem to have seized whatever platforms they might ha have been given. And in fact, um, the, 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 the exception that proves the rule to that for me is um, the Pope back in April um, celebrating a mass in a kind of empty, socially distanced St. Peter's Square against a backdrop of the sirens of people taking people to hospital, um, uh, clanging of bells. And he, he stopped and prayed before an icon that had come to Rome um, from Constantinople. It, it, it kind of opened up, I think, a sense of the, the, the richness and the depth of this Christian tradition. You know, just how much wealth, spiritual wealth, emotional wealth, moral wealth there is in this incredible tradition of people trying to make sense of these questions. Um, you know, and it's, it's a kind of continuum for, for 20 centuries. But, but this does not seem to, have, to me to have been um, perhaps the year in which... Hasn't, um, been, hasn't come to the fore. Yeah. Are you a, you're a Christian? I wrote Dominion basically because um, I lost my faith quite early um, and essentially became a convert to the Greek gods, probably when I was about eight. Um, and essentially, um, over the past 20 years, while writing about um, particularly the pre-Christian world of Greece and Rome, I came to feel more and more that morally and ethically I was in fact incredibly Christian. Um, and that's really what I, I wanted to explore in it was the degree to which um, almost, in a, you know, and almost paradoxically in a way that um, that the loss of faith in God is itself expressed kind of in Christian terms, that the absence that you have is shaped by Christianity um, and that if that um, if that lack of belief in God is transmuted into something in which you, as a positive, then, you know, Richard Dawkins is, is always described as kind of an evangelical atheist. And evangelism is, um, you know, it, it, euangelion, it's good news. That's what, what Paul and the apostles preached. Um, and Dawkins essentially is, is, you know, in that sense, he is an evangelist. Christian. He's saying that, that if you um, topple idols, if you um, purge yourself of superstition, if you come out of the darkness into the light, then you will, you will gain salvation, you will gain redemption. And this is a message that clearly, you know, Dawkins seems to me a very Protestant figure. It, this is very much in the mainstream of Protestantism, but Protestantism in turn is part of um, the broader Christian tradition, which goes back to, you know, you get these same ideas in the way that the missionaries um, in the early medieval period are, are going into the dripping forests of Saxony to spread the word. And ultimately it goes back to um, the Hebrew prophets and their condemnation of the idols of Babylon and Egypt as, um, as uh, you know, stock and stone. Um, but you're not so, quite a Dawkins figure here. No, though. I'm not so a Dawkins figure. So, 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 Are you a, you know, as you, as you celebrate Christmas, this year, do you do so in a right. believing Christian? Right. So, so, so I came to realise basically that my atheism was a kind of subsection of Christianity. That it was it, it kind of related to Christianity, perhaps in the way that um, you know a, a thrush relates to di the dinosaurs of the Mesozoic. 
that it's, you know, it's part of a kind of evolutionary continuum. Um, and I guess that my, my experience of writing Dominion and reflecting on it, thinking about it over the years since, is that um, I've basically come to realize that all the things that I believe in, so uh, human rights, essential equality of human beings, um, the fact that there is a nobility in being human, that these are beliefs. Uh, it requires a leap of faith to believe in them. There's nothing kind of scientific or objective about any of these beliefs. Um, and that uh, I believe them because they stand in a line of inheritance from the, the Christian myth, which is ultimately a Jewish myth, that God created men and women equally in his own image and that therefore they, human beings, possess a particular mm. dignity. And essentially my feeling is, is that if I'm going to believe in um, human dignity, then I might as well go full blown and believe the whole, you know, all the stories. And I believe in it as a myth. I can't, I don't really believe in God. I don't really, I mean, I find it, if I think of it in those terms, if I sit down and think, do I believe, you know, that God, and I think of the icy immensities of space, and I think of the icy immensities of time, I find it very difficult. But if I think, you know, Christmas and Easter, basically the times where I do really believe it, I, because I can believe in it as a story. I can believe in it as a kind of poem, I suppose. And I realise that, um, th that in a sense, I'm culturally attuned to read it and believe in it if I, if I operate on the level of the story, if that makes sense. Mm. It's kind of complex mm. to explain, but, but that's why I think that um, in a sense, dwelling on, um, you know, do you believe in God or do you think this or do you think that, um, kind of misses the point because I think the whole way through uh, the, the 2000 years of Christianity, actually it's, it's kind of replicated itself as memes, if you want to put it in those terms, that it's the stories that have been the key to its success. That even now in a kind of a Europe where um, you know, fewer and fewer people are, are going to church or even have any particular familiarity with the Bible stories, nevertheless, they have an incredibly potent ability to change the way that, um, that history operates. So um, why, did, why did Angela Merkel let in a million people into, uh, into Germany who were, who were not Christian, who were not, you know, who were from a very different cultural background. And I'm sure that the reason for that is the kind of the, um, the heft that the parable of the Good Samaritan has in, you know, in, 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 in the makeup of, the, of Merkel's Protestantism. I'm sure that um, the, the, the openness of people to refugees in Christian societies is, is crucially influenced by people's reflections on the Christmas story, the idea of, of Mary and Joseph having nowhere, no, no room at the inn. Um, and, and I think that... So there's almost a kind of um, victory whether or not you believe it. You have, you, you're, you're sort of Christian whether you want to be or not. Yeah, and I, I, it sounds like you're sort of yeah, I think, I think that bowing to it. It's a question of whether you go with the, the, the grain of these stories. And I find actually that going with the grain of them, have, it makes me happier. I've, 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 I feel kind of more stable in what I believe by doing that. Um, and, and actually, the, you know, it's, it's kind of more, it's more poetic, it's more beautiful. It, in a way, it's kind of um, more exciting to believe in things that are grounded in these kind of stories and in this sense of, of, of poetry and um, of uh, 
kind of theological grandeur and mythology than it is just to believe in a set of abstract principles. So this Christmas, this is my last question for you, Tom. This Christmas, after such a weird year, and it's going to be a weird Christmas, do you feel you'll be thinking differently in any way than you did last Christmas or in previous times? I mean, has, have the events of this year made you realise things that you didn't before? I, f I feel certain fundamental things more powerfully. So, of course, you know, I will not be celebrating Christmas with my parents as I've been planning to. Um, and so, you know, there are reflections on, um, you know, death and potential bereavement that have been sharpened for me. Um, but also my, my wife is a midwife um, and I've, I've always been incredibly proud of, of what she does and the role that she plays um, uh, bringing life into the world. But of course, against um, you know, the backdrop of this year where there's been so much death, the, the sense of what she is doing has been heightened and sharpened, uh, and particularly at, uh, at, at Christmas, of course. You know, so she'll be working on, on Christmas Day. Thinking about um, uh, the story of the, of the nativity, thinking about life in death, thinking about um, birth and um, the role that, that, that she plays in that, I, I feel that my appreciation for her is definitely sharpened. It has a kind of an enhanced spiritual quality. And if she gets to see this, I'm really sorry she'd be embarrassed by, by saying that. But um, I, I know that, that on, on Christmas when she goes out, that is definitely what I will be thinking. Tom Holland, thank you so much and happy Christmas. Thank you. That was Tom Holland, historian, author, um, telling us about Christmas and whether or not it is actually a Christian festival. Turns out it is. Uh, I was hoping to end this with the line that we have put the Christ back into Christmas. I'm not sure that we quite managed that, but uh, it was really interesting and enjoyable. So thanks to Tom and happy Christmas to you. Don't forget you can watch all of our podcast interviews on our YouTube channel. Find us under Unheard and make sure to subscribe for all the latest. Thanks for joining. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.